brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. People loved Jack Devine last episode. That was yeah, great. it went great, I thought. I'd love to have him on again. Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting guy. There's so much knowledge there, and, and it sounds like the next book where he'll discuss the fight against communism, that'll be a really good one. Yeah, I kept trying to drill him on that. I wanted, to, I wanted him to explain because I think there's a... Um, you know, we talk about, like, these different covert actions as if they were all, like, little episodes, which they sort of were. But they were all aimed at the same thing, which was defeating communism. So there's not that much out there, I feel like, that really puts that in the proper context. And Jack Devine is somebody who could potentially do that because he was he sat at the top of the Directorate of Operations. So Yeah, he's truly been there and done that. I mean, 32 years in the CIA conducting all the affairs overseas. I love, we had a, a little talk before we went on air. And, uh, and it's in his book also how he joined the CIA and he wrote a letter to the CIA. This was back in the day, you know, and he wrote a letter like, I'm kind of interested in joining your agency. And they like said, and like a month later, they wrote back like, okay, meet this guy in a coffee shop. It's like, how quaint does that seem today? He was like hand, almost hand recruited um, because he wrote a handwritten letter (laughs) into the CIA. I mean, it would never work like that today. Yeah. Things have changed drastically. Well, he, he, he has a problem with that because he says a lot of qualified people probably get disqualified early on because they don't match what some computer algorithm is searching for. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day, like the OSS, they recruited people by hand and they went and they looked for these like eccentric characters who had special skills. Um, I, I think if I remember correctly, they even recruited uh, someone who was an animator for Disney as one mm. of the more interesting people. But they found they found interesting guys like that. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Leonard Wong coming on this show. I'm excited for that. Of course, uh, we should address the mass shooting that happened in Parkland, Florida. Uh, immediately, you know, you get this response on Twitter of the gun control thing. And I figured I'd at least read this email. Um, question for you, really, from our listener, Mike. Uh, Ian and Jack, on February 14th, there was unfortunately another mass shooting at a school in Florida. 17 people died and 14 were wounded at the time of this email. Um, I th- yeah, I think that's still what they're tallying it as, I believe. Jeez. Um, scrolling through the news feeds, I am already seeing talks about the rifle that was used in AR-15, and some are, are already calling for it to be banned. We have heard this debate before. Why do civilians need military-style weapons? And it's not the rifle's fault. It's the user It's the user that is to be blamed. My question to you, Jack, and others is, do you think the U.S. government should expand the ban on what types of firearms can be purchased? For some background, I'm a veteran, a gun owner, and I live in Illinois, one of the states with the strictest gun laws. My stance is that at this time, we do not need to ban more firearms from being purchased, but rather we need to have stricter, tougher punishments for those that commit crimes with firearms. For example, a Chicago police commander was shot and killed by a four-time felon who was out walking the streets. Why did the courts allow this person to be out and pose a danger to society with such a criminal record? Uh, and he cites the article. Uh, would like to hear your guys' take on the issue. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the uh, you know, pr- you know, perpetual uh, question that we always have after every one of these shootings. I, I personally don't feel that banning the AR-15 rifle is going to stop a single shooting in this country. Um, there's really nothing particularly special uh, about the AR-15. It's kind of a glorified pea shooter. If you if you could ban, you ban the AR-15, let's say we banned it, um, the same sorts of attacks could be carried out by a AK-47 with a uh, SIG rifle, with any number of semi-automatic rifles, some of which are higher caliber than the 5.56 uh, that the AR-15 uses. So I, I really don't 
see the point in banning the AR-15 or, or how that's going to have any sort of impact on shootings. I mean, it's a, it's a much bigger issue than, like, we're going to ban... It's like saying we're going to ban, um, you know, a certain type of car, and that will stop car crashes. You know, it, it just doesn't work like that. I was surprised to see on Twitter Michael Savage, you know, the radio host who is pretty hardline conservative but doesn't go with the party line and everything, and, and he was saying that he thinks, like, armor-piercing bullets should be banned. So it was interesting to see someone who's not a left-wing activist. That's a that's a conversation. Um, also, armor-piercing bullets. I mean, I'm not sure necessarily what he means by that, but... but um, isn't that hollow-tip bullets? A or, hollow point? Is yeah. That, why? What, what does that have to do with the school shooting? I, I don't even know, to be honest. So, I... But I could see, I could see the argument, you know, even though I'm not for it. Yeah, I, I, don't, re- I don't think it's really here nor there. I mean, kids going to school aren't going to be wearing bulletproof vests Un- unless they their parents are members of crate club and they have uh the the, the cry precision oh that that insert, insert. For the back to back yeah being serious you i'm know, yeah th- there are probably more parents you know getting scared about that yeah. and i mean it's it's a concern you know uh, i understand where people are coming from you know i think um Dave Grossman had a interesting lecture about the topic of school shootings. And he said the part of the problem is that even though they keep happening, we keep convincing ourselves that it can't happen. Like we have our head in the sand and he makes the point about um, fires in schools and how we kept having school fires that were killing kids, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever. And we accepted that fires are going to happen in schools. And so we started taking steps. So we started constructing the schools that have non-flammable material. Um, So like even the chairs in the auditorium, he gives the example, are non-flammable. Everything in the school is non-flammable. And since we came up and we started instituting these regulations, we haven't had a single kid die in a school fire Mm. in years and years and years. And that's really incredible. But when it comes to school shootings, we keep acting as if it can't happen. But it keeps happening. So, but they, although they are having more drills for kids uh, of you know how to protect yourself during a shooting, uh, the, even, yeah. even my high school, for example, and I think just about every high school, when I went there, which was not that long ago, you were able to walk right in the building, no problem. Now it's not like that. I, I remember in my school, yeah, same thing after Columbine. I think you had to start checking in at the front door. But, I mean, even then, I mean, some little old lady... Or some rent-a-cop sitting there isn't really going to do that much. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing, and it makes people feel safe. But uh. Or if they have the doors locked, you know, during certain hours and security cameras. Like you have to be buzzed in? Yeah, I, and I think a lot Maybe. of people are doing that. Yeah, I mean, that could be a deterrent, right? Yeah. Might help. Um, there's other things, you know, as far as, like, putting, like, locks that the teachers can use on the, on the classroom doors. That, that's something that could potentially help. Um, should we let teachers be armed? I mean, I remember after Columbine, my math teacher, who interestingly enough, he was an Iranian immigrant who had fought in the Iran-Iraq war. He, he told me about it one time um, because I had wrote a school paper about it that he saw. Um, and he, uh, so he was uh, my math teacher and he wanted to carry a gun. He wanted to conceal carry a pistol in class after Columbine happened because he's like, and he's like, I petitioned the school, like, let me carry my, my weapon and they wouldn't let him. But I'm um, sure it's more than the school. I don't think the school could determine that. Right. R- I'm sure there's like, yeah, state and federal laws. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sure. Especially it's, you went to school in New York. Yeah. So this isn't like, you know, Texas gun laws or Florida. Gun right. Laws. Yeah. No, I'm sure it goes way above the school board's head, yeah. of course. Um, but is that a potential answer? Do we let teachers carry guns? Um, I'd be all for Well, if they are carrying guns, or some of them are, would that be enough of a deterrent to stop school shooters? I mean, these are, like, questions I can't necessarily answer. But no, yeah. I, I Everybody th- thinks that they have the answer. Right, right. Know. But I, I think we should start asking ourselves these t- types of questions, and we need to acknowledge that, yes, these school shootings happen, and we should take steps to prevent it. Is that a lock on the front door well, with a guard there? Is that a lock on the classroom doors? Is that teachers having some weapons or the ability to conceal carry a weapon? Um, what, what's the answer? Also, I'd like to know. Maybe and I it's don't, all of those things. Yeah, I don't know if it's been revealed yet, but what, if any, drugs was the shooter on? Because oftentimes these yeah, these guys yeah. are on psychotropic drugs. If you, you've seen the picture of the kid, right? Yeah, that they tagged. I saw the picture of him in the communist shirt. Yes, yeah, he looks disturbed. You know, he looks like you know he looks like the Batman shooter. You know, like there's something wrong with this dude. Like he's not right. You know. 
I mean, I don't know what that is. I, I couldn't speculate, but, you know, you can, he looks not well to me. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, when I saw just the ongoing gun control debate, which happens every single time, you know, and we become totally desensitized to the shooting itself. And yeah. even though there's like, I don't even want to see them, but there's videos of the classrooms. I, I saw some last night. Yeah, I, I have no interest in watching it. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure yeah. I know what it looks like, and it's not going to bring anything positive to my life. But, no, no, it, uh, it won't. But um, my thought was... So we didn't have him on the podcast. He kind of bailed on us. But what was that guy's name? Cody Wilson, I think. Yeah. So I know that he's pretty, and I would love to have him on, but he just never got back to us, uh, innovative in the 3D printing yeah. industry. And, and like my feeling is this whole gun control debate, it's going to be obsolete soon because it's going to be pretty easy to print your own automatic weapon. Yeah. Or if someone in the neighborhood has a 3D printer, even if they make it so it's not capable to do that, it's probably going to be pretty easy to hack a 3D printer and print whatever you want. Just like, you know, I, I booked a guest on Senator Bradley's show whose son, they were able to print out a prosthetic hand for him, something that would have cost way more yeah. uh, doing it professionally. And they printed it at the school's 3D printer and it works perfectly fine. I believe he was able to like play basketball with it. Uh, it's going to be used for things like that, but it's also going to be used to print automatic weapons and the government is going to have very little they'll be able to do about it. Yeah, once you can 3D print an AK-47, I mean, gun control's over. You know, it's it's going to be a moot point. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, we've really grappled with that fact yet. We don't, it's, you know, the future is coming up on us pretty quick, but we haven't really figured out how to deal with these technologies. You know, even, you know, you can see all the consternation about social media and how it's been used to manipulate people. I mean, this is something that, you know, was foretold in science fiction, you know, yeah, years, years and years ago. Um, even in the 1990s, we would have, you know, I think some of us were aware of how, you know, the technology could be abused. Um, but it's like just now, you know, 20, 25 years later, we're just starting to kind of grapple with the problem yeah. and, and, and start to realize it. And and you can't uninvent an invention once it's out there. Can't and, put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. And there's whatever gun control is passed, like after Sandy Hook in New York, you can no longer buy an AR-15 and stuff like that. It it is not. It I believe it's never going to happen. They're going to go door to door and take everyone's weapons away it in America. It couldn't happen. It's not reasonable. Yeah, there's too many guns in this country. Yeah, and that's the thing. They're so they're still going to be out there. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I don't, I I don't think no matter what side of the argument you're on that there's an easy solution to this type of thing. And I no. do think it's a cultural problem more than anything. I mean, I hate to like make points I've seen in memes and stuff like that, but. There was a time where kids went to high school, like when our parents were were, were in school, and there was like a shooting club. Yeah, kids there was like the 4-H guns. club and stuff like and, that. Yeah. yeah, none of this shit happened. There's very few school shootings. Yeah, and it would be interesting to study like the psychology of it and like how it came about because well, like why do people keep doing stuff like this? And is it... You know, it's like an expression of anger. I mean, on the other hand, I mean, you have uh, school shootings in the in the black community also for a long time that were more gang related or drug related, and um, I, I feel like we kind of turned a blind eye to that too. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when Columbine happened, when gun violence or violence in general came to white America, suddenly people start freaking out about it. Now, the dynamics involved are different, of course, but nonetheless, yeah. there's still school shootings, there's still kids getting shot in school, and you know it's unacceptable either way. I also blame the media on some level for making these school shooters famous because yeah, well, that's these, th- these people who do school shootings, they're all losers. They all have nothing they're really living for. Yeah. They don't give a shit and they want to go down in infamy. Like we all know the names of the two Columbine school shooters. They're the Harris know, and been immortalized. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and it turned out that those two are a good example because they did it to be famous. That was what they wanted. It wasn't because they were being bullied or anything like that. You know, it was because they wanted to be famous. Yeah. And I guess they got what they wanted. I And I hate to bring up, like, a comedy thing, but do you remember a Chris Rock joke about that where he was, like, they said they were outcast, and he was, like, it was six of those motherfuckers. He was, like, I didn't have six friends in high school. I don't have six friends now. <laughs> that is still, like, a great line, I think. But, yeah, no, I think you're completely right. And, and I think most of these people do it to be famous because I think they have nothing else to live for. So they want their, their picture to be on newspapers. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, you can't do something good in life, do something really bad. 
you know, I, I, I don't understand. It's hard for me to understand the rationale behind it. Like, no matter how angry I was or have been, I can't ever imagine, like, I'm going to go and murder a bunch of kids. Yeah. Like, the logic just doesn't make sense to me. Like, there's no rationale behind it. I mean, I can even understand, like, you know, somebody who's got some screws loose and they're like, oh, I'm pissed off at the federal government, so I'm going to go shoot up the IRS or something. Like, please don't do that. That's terrorism. But I'm just, at least you can sort of understand, like, there's a certain logic yeah. to it. Well, like, the the personality that goes and, like, shoots up a school, it, it's, I don't know, it, it's psychopathic. It's There's something behind that I'm never going to understand. I think this disproves the conspiracy theory that these shootings happened so that they could pass more gun control because at this point, there's been so many of them and there has not been any massive change in gun control no. nationally. So, No, I, people, you know, people freaked out and they're like, Obama's coming to take our guns. I mean, none of that happened. Yeah. You know. Um, they tried, but, you know. Yeah, they tried and they'll try again, no doubt. Um, I think that the, the gun control issue has largely been settled in this country, to tell you the truth, since like the 1990s. Uh, I, I think a pivotal moment for it was 9-11. And after 9-11, people, they were afraid of terrorism and other things. And then I think gun ownership, uh, even for self-defense purposes, like it went really mainstream. If you go to the SHOT Show today, like they're marketing heavily towards women. Um, I know normal, like seem like normal people you would not expect to be quote unquote gun nuts and they love going out to the range and shooting on the weekend yeah you know it went mainstream so i I just don't see gun control really going anywhere in this country anytime soon yeah i agree another point that i saw that i guess is on the more left-wing side of the spectrum uh going around twitter and all that was they said for example one idiot tried to put a bomb in his shoe on an airplane, and ever since that time, we all have to take our shoes off yeah. when we board an airplane. Uh, and on the other hand, there's been a plethora of school shootings, and very little has changed. Yeah, and I, why you see those kinds of differences is really it's because of the Bill of Rights. Uh, gun ownership is you know enshrined you know in the Second Amendment. Um, I had a family member of mine. Actually posting on, on Facebook today, he's like, gun ownership is a privilege, not a right. Gun owners have to be prepared that they're going to lose their gun rights and it's their fault because they don't police their own. It's like, okay, actually nothing you're saying there is accurate. You know, gun ownership is one of your civil rights in this country, in America. It's not a privilege, it's a right. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the the law enforcement and the government can do all sorts of things to, you know, screw with you. Uh, at the airport, make you take your shoes off and then scan your body. And it's all based on constitutional um, interpretations and laws. And, you know, gun ownership is just one of those things they really can't screw with. Yeah. Unless you're like a felon or something like that, they can't strip you of your civil rights without any due process. Yeah. I think we've covered it. Um, And I I guess the most important thing to say is rest in peace to these 17 kids. Uh, You know, it's a horrible thing to hear. Yeah, uh, and the, that that school's never going to be the same. Those families will never be the same. Yeah, you know, I, there's nothing I can say that's ever going to change that. I'm with you. All right. Well, with that, we should get over to uh, Dr. Leonard Wong. Excited to talk to him about something completely different. Uh, and let's get over to that. On the show for the first time is Dr. Leonard Wong, who said, call me Lenny. So Lenny is on the show, a research professor for the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College, retired Army officer, taught at West Point and serves as an analyst for the chief of staff of the Army. And I was telling Jack that, uh, so Jack had me reach out to you as a guest because he he really loved the piece that you did um, on the lying culture in the military, which we're going to get into but it, but it was funny that I you know was telling you about the show and that we were interested in having you on and you said to me are you sure you have the right guy I, I didn't do anything that interesting <laughs> well no let me just explain a little bit why I, I was so adamant about having uh, Dr Wong on the podcast is because I was talking to a army officer and he mentioned to me um, you know this uh, this guy over the staff college Dr Leonard Wong who had done this study um, called uh, lying it's called lying to ourselves dishonesty in the army profession and he mentioned how you know there's this study about that showed 
how the army um, has more mandatory training than there are actual training days. And what this results in is military officers and others in the military essentially sending up false reports and lying about what they're realistically able to accomplish. And I immediately knew exactly what this gentleman was talking about because I had lived it myself when I was in the army. But I was actually, I mean, I was just so thrilled and happy to see uh, some, an expert like Lenny here who put it into academic research and can articulate it so much better than I can, because I really believe this is an important issue. So thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how this study came about? And the white paper, uh, listeners can go and take a look at it themselves. Um, if they just Google Dr. Wong's name, and again, it's called Lying to Ourselves, Dishonesty right. in the Army Profession. Yeah. It's, it's posted online. So the study actually started uh, uh, over a decade ago when the chief of staff of the Army came up here at the Army War College. And, uh, and at that time, he was concerned about junior officer uh, initiative, uh, the uh, ability to, uh, to make decisions on their own, their ability, ability to uh, be imaginative and independent. And he thought that we were uh, squelching the innovation in our junior officers. And he thought that the place where, we, where junior officers develop it the most, we were really squeezing them too hard, and that's company command. And so he gave us a tasker up here um, saying, uh, look, I want you to go out there and figure out every single thing we put on company commanders and uh, every single requirement, and I want you to cut it, all the non-mission essential stuff in half, and we're going to return white space back on the company commander's training schedule. And so they gave me 10 war college students. I sent them around the world, collected them all up, and, and we calculated out uh, you know, how many hours each mandatory training takes, and then we said, okay, assume a 10-hour day and take out Christmas and all this kind of stuff. And we came out with, you know, uh, you know we had to go back and brief the chief saying, uh, Chief, uh, you know that uh, non-mission essential training we want to blame it all on? That's not the problem. The problem is we have all this other mandatory training. Matter of fact, when you add it all up, it comes out to 297 days that we have to cram in into 256 available training days. Well, now I would and, point out that you're talking about a 2002 study, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was all pre-9-11 data, right? That's correct. That's all pre-9-11. And that was the days of the MREs, the peacekeeping, and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And so uh, we had massive checklists back then. And uh, now pre-9-11, uh, with 9-11, it kicked in, you know, the, the, the whole new uh, R4Gen checklists and, and things like that. And so... Uh, and so back then, so that study hit the Army, and, you know, it became a, a topic for a while. And so I put it on the shelf. But what was always in the back of my head is, wait a minute, if we established, we showed empirically that it's physically, literally, humanly impossible to do all the mandatory training in the amount of days available, then what are we reporting? And mm-hmm. I knew the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Because the answer is really, you're not allowed to report 82%. <laughs> we all know the answer to that. And so, so I really wasn't asking that question. And so um, I let time go by and time go by, but it was always percolating around. And then, uh, so then I said, you know, we really have to dig into that. And so I went to my colleague, Steve Garris, uh, who's on the Army War College faculty here. And I, I sat down at his PC, and he's busy typing away, busy with something. And I said, Steve, I got another study we need to do. I think we're lying. And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, I think we're <laughs> lying about stuff. And he looks at me and he says, what do you mean we? I never lie. He says, you can ask my wife. It's one thing I, I don't do. I don't lie to people, and I don't lie to anything, and so I don't know what you're talking about. And so he goes back to typing. I said, well, I got this study. I think we're lying about stuff. And he says, I, I, I think it's a dead end. And I said, what are you working on? You're not paying attention to me. <laughs> and he says, I'm knocking out the mandatory training. And I said, so are you doing it? And he says, no, I'm just saying I did it. It's not important that you really did it. You just got to report that you did it. <laughs> and it was at that point I said, I think you're going to be a good co-author. And so... Uh, so, because exactly like you said, Jack, we all know exactly what I'm talking about. But when you confront an army officer or an NCO and say, "Do you lie?" You are getting in their face. It's interesting. You don't do isn't that, isn't it? Because it's like so institutionalized that we don't see it as a lie anymore. That's the new normal. Exactly right. And there's two things. It's one, society loves us, and we listen. <laughs> and, you know, they put us up on a pedestal. And we're the most trusted, they ask, of all the leaders of any, mili- of any institution in the U.S., who do you trust? You know, they, and they say, the leaders I trust in the institution of the military. And so we know that. And, you know, Congress and Wall Street are on the other end. We're at 55%. They're at 5 and 6%. We live up high. Co- society's busy telling us, 
you guys are trustworthy. And so we hear that and we, we love it. And then we tell ourselves that we are above reproach. We live above the common level of life, you know, integrity, respect, you know, mm-hmm. honor, and all that kind of stuff. We just live it and breathe it. And yet, this is so commonplace that we say, yeah, yeah, got it, got it. And yet, when I walk up to someone and say, do you lie? I had so many people get so angry with me. Of course. Because it, it was an insult, because we, we, we breathe integrity, and yet we so quickly will lie on things. And can just for some of the listeners who maybe are not uh, military members, can we talk a little bit briefly about what some of this mandatory training is? Because there, I, I think a lot of people may not understand that we live in a information intensive um, era of computers and technology, emails, phones, all that good stuff. And what that's allowed the higher command elements to do is to put these training requirements um, in the context of online training modules. Um, all the way down to you know the individual soldier, the private, to, to right. who has the, these mandatory training requirements. In the old days, we could only uh, you know you couldn't touch individuals. You could only get uh, maybe uh, unit uh, unit reports. And uh, but now with the advent of computers, we could reach and the advent of a uh, common access card, a CAC, uh, with their ID card with a little uh, chip in it that identifies each individual with a ten-digit code. We can now track down every single person and find out what they've done and what they haven't done. And so every year we have a suite of mandatory training. Now, the Army is not alone in this, okay? I right, mean, right. The, the other services have it. You know, the Air Force had online training on how to operate a fire extinguisher. And, uh, and, and the Army, we've got, you know, the dangers of bath salts, the dangers of uh, uh, vaping. We have uh, fetal alcohol syndrome problems, uh, so everything that someone says, you know, we've got a problem, they need training on this, another block of instruction. But here's the key, though. We can blame the mandatory training for this culture we live in, but it's way more than the mandatory training. And so you look at our administrative burden. Uh, and so every time I want to go on leave, in the old days, you would turn in a Department of the Army Form 31, and that was your leave form. And that's how you got on leave. Today, you turn in a Department of Army Form 31, but then you submit your uh, leave and earning statement, and then you submit a vehicle inspection signed by a supervisor, and then you uh, you have to turn in something called TRIPS, which is a travel risk prevention system where you have to go on the computer, and the computer asks you, uh, how far are you going to drive? When are you going to take breaks? Are you on any prescription medicines? How much sleep did you get last night? And you learn very quickly, if you want to go on leave this Wednesday, you, you got to tell that computer the, numbers, yeah. the right answers. Exactly. And I mean, so we learned to lie so quickly. And, and tens of thousands of those are turned in on an OER support form. In other words, for our evaluations that we turn in, uh, you have to accompany it with a form that says, I've been counseled. Well, you've got to counsel them once a quarter. That's four times. And, and Jack, you know this. It's nice to you get the first initial counseling, but to get the four counselings, that's like almost impossible. Huh. Well, I'll be uh, just be quite candid about it. I mean, yeah. I, I used to go on leave, of course, and I, I like to travel abroad, um, go backpacking <laughs> in Central America and stuff like that. And you had to go through a litany of like briefings, like SATA briefs and uh, safety and watch these like old videotapes made by the State Department about how to like safeguard oh, yourself yeah. when traveling abroad. And I did that the first time when I went I went down to Costa Rica after I finished ranger school to go backpacking, went through all the process. But like I was, let's see, I was probably 20 years old at the time. And that was like a a teachable moment for me as a young man. I was like, okay, if I want to travel abroad, I'm going to lie to the army next time. So I don't have to go through all this crap or what I perceived as, as crap. Right. Well, and that's, that's the thing is that, um, it becomes so casual to us. Right. Um, Right. and it gets passed along to everyone else as this is the right way to do things. Um, and and so, that has bigger implications than just a uh, army specialist going on leave. It ha- actually ends up having very profound implications on the army as a whole. Right, and then so it spills over. So we start with the mandatory training, and uh, and mandatory training examples there is like um, so right before a deployment, everyone goes on block leave. They come back. They have about a month to, before they actually deploy. And right then, it's like, get every single piece of mandatory training done mm-hmm. uh, before you deploy. And so suddenly, it's all, every, everyone's trying to crank out stuff. And I asked, so what's an example of you know, this phenomenon I'm trying to discover going on during that time? And I, someone tells me, well, what we do is we take the smartest person in a squad, and we have <laughs> mandatory training, and they get everyone's CAC, their, their ID cards, and they take the training nine times and pass out the certificates when they finished. Um, 
Jack, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Actually, I wanted to ask you about the, the notion of certificates because this is something that really bothers me because I, I get the feeling that certificates, certifications become this sort of like CYA measure. Um, and, and it just strikes me as so cynical that we have soldiers take like um, suicide prevention training. They print out a certificate and then we say, oh, they're good. They got the training. That's exactly right. And, and, and that's where the whole thing I mean, we cut, this is the, the conclusion of this is, so is that, what, is that what we're driving for? Because someone at some point said, we really need suicide prevention training because we've got too many people committing suicide right. and they don't understand that you can get help, that you're not alone and all this kind of stuff. And yet we came up with a way to make who feel better? The leaders. So they can really, def- so after make, someone kills themselves, we can right, defer. Right, to make ourselves feel better. So we can go to bed at night and say, well, thank goodness everyone's been trained on suicide prevention. When we all know, you know, I don't think the person really paid much attention to it, but they have a certificate. Um, but we go to bed sleeping easy because it looks like everything's good. And that was the problem with our profession, is that we, we were content with the facade. We were content with everything green during briefings. We were mm-hmm. content with uh, getting a go on everything. Um, but it has consequences. I asked, them, I asked people, so when you go downrange, does this kind of stuff come up, or is things really serious down, you know, you know, you know when you're allowed to lie and when you're not allowed to lie? Well, we had things like uh, I had one uh, captain tell me, well, we had an IED go off. We were doing a relief in place. Had two lieutenants. Uh, both get injured. But uh, I lied about the distance to the IED because I didn't want both lieutenants being evacuated because of uh, TBI. And so I told a lie. I knew it was a lie. Um, see, in that case, the person knows it's a lie. And yet they say, I, I, think, I think I'm doing it for the best. Or we had, uh, um, we'd have a unit show up to train uh, partner units. And uh, when the partner units would arrive, or when they'd arrive with the partner units, they'd immediately rate them amber or red because they're so poorly trained. And then they'd spend six months with them. And then they'd bring them up to green. And then they'd rotate out. The next unit would come in. What do you think they rated them? Amber. Indeed. Amber so they could show progress. Spend six months with them, <laughs> and then you'd be green again. And you know what I'm saying? So do you, do you believe the ratings we're giving them, or are we just feeding this system? Well, this is um, when we get into sort of the larger um, national security aspects or warfighting aspects, I think, of your study. Um, when I was in Iraq in 2009 with a uh, Special Forces ODA, I, I noticed and I realized very quickly that my command was under a lot of pressure to show progress um, because a policy decision had been made that we were going to withdraw out of Iraq. And now once that decision had been made, the, there was, it was like now we had to fabricate the reality that we were ready to withdraw, that Iraq was ready to stand on its own two feet without us. And, That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so I know when we left, and you know this too, every partner unit was green and we got the real rating when ISIS showed up. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, when, you know what I'm saying? And yet, I know the briefings went through. You know, we had storyboards that were, had to be turned in after every uh, patrol. And then I, here I have captains telling me, well, you know, I had four hours to prepare for the next patrol, or I could spend it doing the storyboard. So yes. what I did is I either copy and pasted, or I just made it up. Well, the, the time crunch was so difficult. I remember our team leader, um, who was really a, a terrific officer, and I, I have a lot of respect for him to this day. But I mean, he had a very limited amount of time to send those storyboards up, and they were they had tons of information he had to include in there. Exactly. So I'm not. I don't want to impugn anyone uh, here. Well, that's but the thing. Is that I, we don't I, want to talk about individuals. Right. We want to talk about the whole profession. Right. And so, but I mean, uh, he he and so many other um, officers were placed in this situ- in the situation you're describing where it's like they're being told they have to fudge things. Right. And, and, and so when I came up with this study, there's really some key points that, that had to come out. And one is, the first one is that we lie. And that's really hard for us to say we lie. Uh, because, you know, we're taught so early that we don't lie. But you know what? We lie. But that's followed by another thing. That's, that's the system makes us lie. Mm-hmm. Um, is that I can't do it all. And you won't take... I'm at 87% for human trafficking training. Um, you want me to say 100%? I'll tell you 100% so I can get on to bigger and better things. So the first point is we lie. I hate to say it, but we lie. The second point is the system makes us lie. But then there's a third point is sometimes we as leaders make our subordinates lie to us. Yes. And so I, I, I view this as you know, sometimes our kids walk down the stairs and you say to them, did you clean your room? And we know the answer. <laughs> we know the answer is they did not clean the room. And yet we want them to say... 
yeah, the room's clean. And, and so they lie to us. We take it. We know it's a lie, but we take it. And then the facade goes on. That's what we do in the Army, is, uh, where it'd just be so easy to just walk upstairs and say, your room's a disaster. I'm not even going to ask you if you clean it. Just clean it. Um, but we do the same thing in the Army. I, was... is that I, I went to the Department of the Army up at the Pentagon. I asked those guys up there, so all this information that we keep feeding you, what do you think about it? And they all say, well, we know it's not true. And I said, Why do you, how do you know it's not true? And they said, we used to be down there. We know what you're giving us. We'd never let a, <laughs> we never let a senior leader make a decision off this data. And I said, okay, look at the situation. We got us down at the bottom, feeding what we know is not true. You at the top receiving stuff that you know is not true. And so we called it mutually agreed deception, is that we all know it's happening, and yet we all pretend. Well, I, I also wanted to ask you another question, Lenny, about sort of the upstream side of this. Um, yes. Because you are, or not you personally, the Army asks yes. subordinate units to provide so much information because we live in this electronic age with their storyboards and their opsums and this and that. I remember one thing I had to do every week was send up fid pics. I had to send up pictures of myself training the Iraqi SWAT team to prove to hire that I was actually doing my job. And what I did was I found like five pictures on the shared drive and I sent up the same five pictures every week and no one noticed. <laughs> that's the irony. Um, yeah, that's the yeah. irony. Um, and uh, another example I'll bring up, and this was not my team, thank God. Um, but there was a, a case, this happened, where a team sent up an opsum that included racial epithets on it. Of you no know, <laughs> we killed we killed X amount of you know blank blanks um, right. that should that should never have been put in there uh, that that never should have happened, but that went all the way that report went all the way up to CENTCOM before anyone noticed. Which right. the, so the the racial epithets that's a disturbing thing, of course. But what's even more disturbing to me is that nobody read it. No yeah. one read it. They're, they're right. asking for more information than they can actually process. Exactly, the process becomes. You know the the green during the briefings. It's the the let's, so we go this through this uh, kabuki dance of briefings and and QTBs and uh, you know updates and everything. Where what's important is what's briefed as green, not the content of the briefing. And uh, and I just saw that happening, and it was. But you know, some people stopped me and said, "So what? Okay, the army's still effective. Maybe this is just a byproduct." of uh of looking under the hood too deeply and uh so so some people pushed back and said you know this went on during vietnam we know about the body counts and all this stuff the army is still a good army um what's the big deal and uh so then i had to think of okay so what so why is it a big deal so what why am i making a uh, a big deal about it and uh and so the first thing i came up with was because someone told me it's like well the problem with the way things are right now is that everyone, every individual, gets to determine where to draw the line. Right. What's right and wrong. Right. And so, and so, everyone, you know, should you lie about on a storyboard? Some people look at storyboards and say, "Are you kidding? That that's real actionable intelligence that you're passing up. Mm-hmm. You better not lie on that." Other people say, "This is a pain in the neck. I have a real mission to do, and storyboards aren't part of it. I should lie on them." And so, the first thing is, everyone gets to determine. What's right and wrong? The second thing is, is once we start lying on stuff, you can't trust anything. Right. And so we don't know if when the chief briefs Congress on how many SARCs we have, you know, <laughs> sexual assault response coordinators, because he doesn't know if the number's right, and actually his staff winds up telling him, hey, chief, those numbers you got, they really weren't right. Uh, so first thing is, is every individual gets to determine what's right or wrong. Second thing is he can't trust anything. Another thing is as soon as you come into the Army, um, what we start teaching is, this is the way you become a hypocrite. This is, if you want to yeah. succeed in the Army, this is the way you got to act. And so for me, an example of that was uh, as a brand-new second lieutenant, uh, engineer officer. You know, I was down at Fort Belvoir, Virginia in the old days, and it was our first Army physical. And uh, we're sitting in a giant classroom, 100 of us, and there's Army doctors up in the front, and they're, we're filling out the paperwork. And, you know, first name, uh, go into block one, last name, go in block two, block three, social security number, get down to block 14 or so, and it says, state your current physical condition. And then the doc up front says, all right, in block 14, right, I am in excellent physical health. And all 100 of us would write, I'm in excellent physical health. The, the Army For psychologists are well aware of that phenomena, too. I, I had a conversation with one once. 
As the lone civilian here, I, I feel like this is very similar, though, to what happens in corporate America. You know, there's just always, like, busy work that people oh, yeah. fill out, and they don't give a shit about the accuracy of it. It's, it's, I think it's like a culture of just America or the world in general. Of bureaucracies. Yeah, I agree, yeah. exactly. Of bureaucracies. And so the question is, are we just a bureaucracy? Well, because often if we're just a bureaucracy, then go ahead and lie to it. But we're supposed to be a profession. Right. And a profession, you know, you, 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 you do something well, you're trusted by society, um, you uh, develop your own. But a profession also does something else. Is when a profession sees something wrong, it polices itself. And so if we're really a profession, if we want to say that we have standards, then we should do something about it. Or if we don't do anything about it, someone else will step in and fix it for us. Well, and unlike other organizations, the consequences in the military are literally life and death. Exactly right. And, and, and we pride ourselves, we live off of, we operate off of an assumption of truth. And so, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about the spiritual schism that is created in the soldier because of what you're talking about, that we're asking them to lie. And, you know, our guys, uh, you know, I think most of our soldiers are brought up in this culture that emphasizes honor and integrity, um, especially uh, organizations like West Point. They really pound that into these young men and then they get into the force and now they're being asked to deviate. They're being asked to lie. And, and what does that do to a, to an individual on a, on sort of a spiritual level? Well, we, we teach them how to be good hypocrites. So we teach them how to, how to talk the integrity and honor uh, language and to actually look down on society for being less than honorable mm-hmm. because they, they're not part of this honorable profession that we're in. And yet we have our feet dragging through this not-so-nice mire and muck of lying that we've become. And yet we learn to live with it and pretend that it doesn't happen. And so we, we become very accustomed being, to being hypocrites. That's not, that's not a, uh, a good way to run a profession. Now, I'll tell you what, I had it. You, we compared it to civilian organizations. But I had an awakening at the beginning of this when I was th- thinking about should I start up a study. I was talking with a civilian friend, and he says, you know, my wife just got moved up in management, and she worked for FedEx. And I said, what happened? Why is she moving up? And he says, well, her boss got fired. And I said, what, why did her boss get fired? And he said, well, they found out their boss was well, falsifying rosters for mandatory training. <laughs> now, Jack's laughing, okay, because I heard that, and all I could think was, so? And he was telling me, can you believe she was falsifying rosters for mandatory training? You don't do that. And it just showed me how wow. n- numb I had gotten yeah. yep. to, to something that you could get fired for at FedEx. So that's incredible. So that's, so that's what's going on. You know, on one hand, we look at it, and, and, and this gets to the reaction when the study came out. Um, on one hand, you look at it and you go, oh, that's, that's terrible. On the other hand, it's like, well, that makes total sense. Well, there's this other interesting aspect of it, and I, I guess that I wanted to get into a little bit is a lot of people actually criticize the, the military, and even within the military, as we say, we've gotten too politically correct. And I, I think that's misidentifying the problem. I think the real problem is that we're getting too corporate. And, and I think what you're, well, from my standpoint, the way I see it is, is that we swing between a profession and a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think when you say corporate, it means the bureaucracy. So, and we can't help it because we love, we love rules and structure and, and, and thinking from the top down on telling, well, you know, you know, we got to be careful about these young kids driving on leave. So let's create a whole system. Uh, that's the bureaucracy, and yet the profession is on the other end, and that's pushing back. And that's what I say we've we've shifted from the profession. You know, in the old days, if a, a PFC didn't come back off a of leave because they crashed the car because they tried driving too far on leave and they didn't get enough sleep, we wouldn't run to the filing cabinet right. to find out if they had everything fixed. We would run to where? We'd run to their leader. Right. And we'd say, I can't believe you let Smith go on leave. You know his car doesn't work. You know he's uh, had guard duty last night. You know he's on prescription medicine. And you would, you know expect, him, you would expect him to know his soldier. Exactly right. And we'd hold the leader responsible, not a piece of paper that says, 
Well, he told the computer he, that everything was good. And so what we've done as a profession is we've shifted towards the bureaucracy, and we've learned to trust a system, a checklist, instead of trusting leaders, instead of trusting people, because people are imperfect. And I mean, when uh, when I was in the military, I mean, I I can just tell you from my own personal experience that there comes this point where I I saw the the mandatory training as just a burden that was handed down to the some faceless guy in the Pentagon. I I didn't care at all all about. And you're I think for the soldier on the ground, it, it results in these like divided loyalties. And, you know, you choose. Are you more loyal to your mission and your men or are you loyal to this online training module? <laughs> and, right. and, the, and the question, right. I mean, the answer is obvious to the vast majority <laughs> of the young men out there. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I think that we, we lie because we almost feel like we're correcting the scales of justice in the world. Yeah, yeah. Is that it, it's totally, it's, this is ridiculous and I, it's my, almost my duty to lie back to you because you're creating such a, a ridiculous situation for us down here. Right. Um, but, but, Deep down inside, we both know, though, that um, it shouldn't be it was, that way. It was created by a well-intended person. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't created by a person who said, "I'll waste someone's time." Um, because I've roamed the halls of the Pentagon looking for that evil person, and there is none. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They they really do think that you know they're creating these training modules, and it's to you know. Crack they love down. the soldiers as much as we do. Yeah, to crack down on on, uh, exactly. on human trafficking or to you know. But their way of doing it is through the bureaucracy. Right. Right. And I prefer if they would, we would turn to the profession and say, leaders, go do your job. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it goes back to, you know, the old school where the first sergeant would kind of slide a glass of scotch across to you and be like, yeah, tell me what's got you so blue, kid. You know, it's a, that's a different type of leadership. It is. It's, it's harder, and it doesn't brief well. Right, right. <laughs> well, yeah. The, I guess the, another interesting uh, thing I thought when I when I read your study and when I, I watched your lectures on YouTube, which I would actually really encourage people to go and take a look at after this, um, is what do you think about the this? Uh, there's this notion I feel like that all of these corporations are bringing in these retired generals and retired military officers to teach them how to lead and like set up their tactical operations center for them and, and bring all these military lessons learned into the, into uh, the corporate world. And meanwhile, it feels like the military itself is trying to drag all these lessons from the corporate world to replace our military culture. I just wonder if you could comment on that from your perspective and whether you think I'm right or wrong and how you feel about that. Um, I think that um, our society and us, that uh, we, when we get into a position where it's hard to make a decision, it's hard to, uh, um, when I say us, I mean the military, um, it's hard to, we don't trust our own judgment. And we want someone who we think is an authority. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for society, they look at us, they look at the military, and they say, oh, you're a successful military person. You, you must be so wise. Um, and so uh, they trust. But for the military, it's ironic that we turn around and say, well, we know who we are. We're just average Joes. Um, shoot, we get Dr. So-and-so. He's an expert. And so we bring it, or, or CEO so-and-so, they're experts. And so it's funny to watch how we will go out and bring in consultants who are just some average Joe off university or someplace, and, and suddenly they're experts. Um, but then it, the same thing happens in reverse, is that, You'll see military, former military person go someplace and treated like a, uh, an extreme expert just because they serve just like the rest of us. And uh, so I think it's not necessarily a problem with the military. It's just humans, uh, in our society at least, that we just love someone who gives an aura of authority because there's an insecurity that we have about us. Interesting. What do you think? So as, as a military, what does the military have to do or what can they do better to continue to earn that trust that the public has in them? The military um, as an institution? Sure. Um, uh, how do we keep, you know, we're, we're the most trusted institution in the U.S. at 78%. Yeah. Um, but, but that's, we, we, we can't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I think there are, there's a, there's factors that will bring this down, and uh, I think we're starting to see some of those factors uh, take place. And so the first factor is, uh, you know, the, the question is, is what makes us so high up in the first place? You know, why do people trust us? And I think there's two reasons. It's one is we're competent. We do the nation's biddings, uh, you know, and, and we execute wars. And uh, now we have failures. We have 
scandals, um, but we correct ourselves. And actually, a lot of the failures are blamed on the politicians because it wasn't our decision anyway. <laughs> so we're viewed as competent. Uh, but the other thing is that we don't compete with society. They don't see us as being political. They yes. don't see us as, as selfish, as doing it out of uh, uh, our own self-gain. And, and so they look at uh, other people like Congress and the presidency and big business and they drop those institutions down because they say, no, you're, you're trying to get your slice of the pie. So given that, how do we maintain the confidence our society has in us? Well, the first thing is, is they, they better not view us as competing uh, with them. In other words, we're doing it selflessly. When we ask for a giant military budget and we start talking about cutting what people view as entitlements, that will influence how much confidence they have in us as an institution because we've been riding high that they could pour as much money as they want into us because it didn't cost them anything. But if we have to start saying, you can give us money, but it's going to cost you, that might affect it. The other thing is, it's like I said, they trust us as an institution because we're not political. Every time we see a bevy of generals in black suits standing on a political stage, that erodes that standing that we have that we're not political. And, and you see it from all sides of the spectrum is generals being political, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that erodes them because society thinks we're above that. Uh, and the next thing is that they don't, the society want to erode the trust that, uh, that they have in us is that uh, they don't like it when it looks like we're not taking care of our own. Yes. And so what I'm focusing on specifically is veterans. Even though it's not the military's job to take care of veterans, it's the Veterans Administration. If we treat veterans poorly they get upset with the military. And so, uh, so when they see how veterans are, are coming back from wars, not being helped, and, or uh, you know, unemployment or whatever, it, it looks bad for the military. And then the final thing I think that influences how our society trusts us is when, because uh, we saw this in other countries, when the military is used against society itself. Domestically. It's, exactly right. And so when you start military, when you start pulling the National Guard out to, to fight rioters, our society just doesn't like that. It's, it's a police thing. Um, uh, but so, so I, that's, I see four ways if you want to drop confidence, trust in the military institution. Uh, those are the four things. Wow. This has been incredible um, and very helpful for me. I hope a lot of other people also listening. What uh, is, is this a study? Uh, it sounds like maybe there's another study you're working on right now from the way you're talking. No, I mean, um, I have other studies, but I'm afraid to, if I reveal them, I'll either change my mind because you'll convince me otherwise, um, (laughs) or I'm, or I'm flat out wrong (laughs) and I'll, and I'll come to that realization on air. Oh, no, it just sounded like maybe you're working on something about, uh, about life after service or something of that nature. Um, actually I was, I am, I mean, I am, I'm looking at, uh, okay, I'll give you a little hint. Um, I'm looking at does the VA disability system. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What does that do to us? Yeah, these are all like super interesting, important questions. Um, yeah. So, okay, we, maybe we better stop there because I don't want to yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> paint, paint the subject well, too the, much. The, what, what, I think you know what I'm getting at. I, no, I understand. Absolutely. And I, um, I, th- I guess there's one other thing I, I would point out here is a lot of this stuff we've been talking about. And again, a lot of the information, um, the, a lot of the data you looked at, not all of it, but at least some of it was um, pre 9-11. And I just ask people to also consider the amount of wear and tear that has been put on the military the last 16 years. Um, you know, you have all these mandatory training requirements, but on, that's on top of now combat deployments. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, now, what we should do, though, is we should say, so what has happened since the study come, came out? Right. And so, because it's, you know, and so at first, you know, I got massive resistance. Uh, but then, uh, believe it or not, you could actually see a bureaucracies changing. And uh, so, and it was not just the Army. You know, the Air Force, they got rid of 40% of their computer-based training. Oh, wow. Uh, the Secretary of Defense says, we're going to have a, a review of all mandatory training. The Army, you know, General yep. Milley says, if it has, doesn't have anything to do with readiness, you have my permission to ignore it. And so you see, like, the 82nd Airborne and the first, uh, first ID, they got rid of all their computer-based training. They said, uh, look, wow. if it's not connected to readiness, 
we're not going to do it. You still have to do training, but just don't do it on the computer. Do it in a, in a classroom with a leader standing in front of you, and, uh, and that's okay. And so what you're starting to see is a lot of subordinate commanders are now saying, you know, before I felt like I had to go through that dog and pony of being green on everything and doing a good, nice briefing, now I'm allowed to say what's really going on. That's an incredible, you know, cultural change in the military. It, we're not there yet. We're getting there. You know, we're not there yet, but it's, it's very encouraging to see uh, some change. And it's, it's a very logical change because it's not like it's foreign to anybody. We all know what, what we're talking about. Well, and something had to give, too. And, and I'm glad those changes have at least started to begin rather than wait until the system actually breaks and starts falling apart. Uh, that's a good point, especially, like you said, when we're so consumed with war, the last thing we need to do is, is juggle this facade we had going. Um, when it's so much easier just to be honest. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, I think this is going to be actually really helpful for people who listen to it. Okay. Yeah, hey, we, I'm here anytime. We really appreciate it. So once again, right. uh, for the listeners, Dr. Wong's a research professor for the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College, also retired Army officer, taught at West Point, and served as an analyst uh, for the chief of staff of the Army. And, and I guess last thing, is there anything else you want to get out there on on softrep.com slash radio on the article, I'll link to the actual study so you guys can check it out, which, by the way, for the listeners, all the back episodes are there as well. But any, any, um, anything that you want to plug? I, I don't think you're on social media or any of that. No, just you guys keep up the good work. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate all right, it. Take care. All right. Well, much appreciated for Dr. Wong coming on. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. And also, we're close to, I think... I think it's a thousand reviews on on apple Podcasts, which is great we'd love to get up to a thousand and also we'd like to get back up to being like number one in the government category and and back up to five stars we've been stuck at like four and a half uh, stubbornly due to <laughs> due to like a handful of negative reviews so yeah we're at 937 ratings it would be nice to hit the big 1000 so please leave a review for us it's much appreciated um, as always, as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. I was checking that on the app. They already have episodes up of Inside the Team Room Snipers. On that was uh, Nick the Reaper Irving, Jason Delgado, Nick Betts and Isaiah Burkhart. So check that out. Um, SoftRep TV's premier show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV at softreptv.us and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. I've been checking out SoftRep TV's Instagram at SoftRep TV, and they're posting some really cool footage uh, of stuff they've been working on between Drew Wallace, who's been on the show, and Nick Cahill, who's also been on the show. They're doing an awesome job filming everything. Um, and then, of course, Crate Club, which I mentioned earlier in the program. I mean, you know, with tragedies happening, it is really important to be prepared. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of the gears handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're going to get quality gear that they would deploy with. Uh, crates we've sent in the past have included stuff like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, stuff like the multi-tool that's in my wallet, although no one could see it on camera because we're not on camera, but I still keep this thing in my wallet. Oh, yeah. It's fucking awesome. Love it. Um, so you don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. And I think that about wraps it up. Um, of course, rest in peace um, to those that lost their lives in Parkland, Florida. Really horrible tragedy to hear about. And um, I'm sure that, you know if there's any updates, they'll be up on SoftRep.com. There's always people like Alex Hollings writing... Um, pieces about this and i know you're looking at the schedule which i really need to update because it's uh, i have like the older shit there i mean next (laughs) episode we have uh we have brent gleason coming in studio uh former navy seal 
and have his book over here to check out. And, uh, yeah, some other cool stuff coming up. I think next month we'll have part two with uh, Mike Vining, hopefully. Definitely. yeah. That'll be cool. And I want to get Phil Labonte on the podcast from All That Remains. I'm going to work on that for all next right. month. Uh, cool, man. Anything else from you before we wrap up this week's uh, podcast? That's, that's that's it. You know, I'm I'm working behind the scenes on uh, an important story that, like uh, like Dr. Wong, <laughs> I can't really allude to uh, at the moment um, about my future work, but it'll get there. I think in you know the next week or two we should nice. see something. Cool. All right. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. I, I know everybody's looking forward, even though it's way in the works. Is you know, your memoir that'll be coming I'm, out probably I'm, next year, right? I'm working on that every day. Um, I'm, I'll probably be done. I'm hoping to be done early March. Oh, nice. That's okay. when I got to turn it in. I, but I, then I, it, it comes out probably closer to late 20, 2018. I'm not sure exactly right? what the, what the release date is going to be, but I got like, I got like 60,000 words so far. So speaking of books, you know what I noticed is so a couple podcasts back when we had Nick Kaufman on, um, he was like, yeah, if you're interested in checking out my book for free, just tweet me for a PDF. And, like, he's getting bombarded oh, really? with tweets. Because our listeners love to read military books, and you guys also love free shit. So Everyone loves free stuff. <laughs> yes, they do. So, uh, cool. All right. Thanks again, guys. And we'll be back with another show on Wednesday. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at softreprepradio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.